CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Today on Political Rewind, with Johnny Isaacson's surprise decision to resign, we take you inside the maneuvering by both Republicans and Democrats to decide how to best take advantage of an election that puts two U.S. Senate seats in Georgia in play. The stakes are high. Georgians could make the difference in which party has control of the Senate. Political Rewind starts now. Glad to have you with us for Political Rewind uh, today, a week that brought Hurricane Dorian uh, close to Georgia's shores, a week in which the Senate race here heated up, and so much more happening in uh, Georgia today. We'll get to all of that with our panel. Uh, today we've got, of course, Jim Galloway. He's with us every Monday and uh, Friday for our, our radio show. Jim, it's great to have you here. You, of course, uh, are in the paper on Wednesdays and Sundays with your column and uh, oversee the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. How are you? I'm doing great. It's been a busy week, though. Yeah, it's been a crazy week, and we're going to talk a lot about it. Uh, Karen Owen is back with us. Karen, of course, is a political science professor out at West Georgia University, and we're really happy to have you back with us. Thank you for having me. I'm glad you, to be here. You spent the summer doing research on a couple of subjects that probably down the road sometime we're going to want to talk about. Special elections. Yes, I'm working on a book on special elections and then some work looking at the rhetoric of Senator Margaret Chase Smith. That's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe best known because she was beaten by Richard Nixon at one point in her career, right? Well, she ran uh, ran for presidency in 64, yeah. and then Goldwater got the nomination. Oh, Goldwater. I'm yes. sorry. Thank yes. you. Okay, mm -hmm. thank you. That's right. Okay. I, I'm glad you're on top of that, because <laughs> I'm obviously not. Uh, Buddy Darden, former U.S. congressman from uh, Cobb County, is uh, back with us today. You've had a nice summer, Buddy. You were on vacation with Lillian, your wife, up in uh, Canada. Back from the Canadian Rockies and delighted to be here today. Glad to have you. Eric Tannenblatt, he is uh, a lot of things. He's very active in Republican Party politics, both in Georgia and nationally. He was Sonny Perdue's chief of staff when Sonny was governor for at least a short period of time. And uh, you're now the head of global government relations for Denton's, the world's largest law firm. How are you? I'm doing well. You were gone for a while, too. You were up uh, on the Cape, yeah? Nantucket. Or Nantucket. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, good. Everybody's had their vacation, which means you're ready to really talk. You've got some energy. Jim Galloway, let's look. You know, Dorian didn't end up being a storm that did much here in Georgia. We escaped any of the real wrath of the storm, fortunately. Uh, but it was Governor Kemp's first really major test in dealing with an emergency, a weather emergency of that magnitude. So briefly, before we move on, what do we have to say about how Governor Kemp and his administration handled this? I think I think we can say that he was he was he was very cautious. Uh, he issued his call call to for evacuation pretty darned early. I mean, it was it, and, and part of the part of the problem here was the suspense that 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 the, the hurricane caused because it was just moving so slowly. It, I mean, it hovered over the Bahamas for two or three days and then crept on maybe five miles an hour. It was and and could shift at any moment. Yeah, you know, uh, Eric, I, I said on our show at the beginning of this week, when we were still waiting to see what Dorian might do, that although it is certainly far, far less important, 
it, there's this way in which uh, what a governor has to do with a storm like that, it's like the school superintendent who has to decide whether to call off school when the snow clouds are moving in. It's sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. He did call for an early evacuation. There were people who contacted this show when we talked about it who were angry that they were ordered to leave their houses. But, but all in all, you've just got to act, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the toughest things for a chief executive or, or um, a leader to do. And, and I've seen it firsthand when I worked for, uh, for Governor Purdue. I think Governor Kemp did exactly what he needed to do. As Jim said, you know, this was an unpredictable storm, and it's better to be uh, cautious than, or overly cautious than, uh, than not taking the, the proper measures, because we've seen what happens when you are not prepared. And I think Governor Kemp did what he needed to do. Karen and Buddy, I want to give each of you a chance to weigh in before we move on. Well, I think, you know, Eric makes the point, even if you're overly cautious, you want to make sure you are doing something because you don't want to get caught not acting. And in this situation, I think that they were relying on the information they had at that time. And as Jim mentioned, it was very slow moving. So they were just trying to react to what they were seeing take place and ensure that people were safe. You know, I can't help but wonder, Buddy. I mean. This, we, 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 it seems to me that snowpocalypse is always on the mind of a governor who since Nathan Deal and Kasim Reed struggled with that ice storm that hit Atlanta that we weren't prepared for at all. It's got to be in the back of, of, a, of a Governor Kemp's mind, the rest of Nathan Deal's tenure as governor. You can't escape how that storm completely paralyzed the city. Of course, and I've never been one to lavish praise on Governor Kemp, but this time I think he called it right because, as Eric says, it's better to be safe than sorry. And in this particular instance, uh, we didn't know where it was going, and sure, that's been some inconvenience and maybe some unnecessary cost. But at the same time, we did not have that embarrassing disaster to take place like it did in Snowmageddon, and that's got to be on their minds every time one of these things comes up. Or, or even Katrina, when you think about what happened in New Orleans and. You know, there's, there was a lot of criticism then, too. So I think the governor did exactly what he needs to do. His number one, uh, you know, priority is the safety of the people. You know, Jim, it strikes me that the media has a role in all of this. And to some extent, media ought to be thinking about the same kinds of things that a governor is, which is how do you balance trying to make sure that you're giving people information that can keep them safe, uh, but in the media's case, or how do you use this situation to make sure you've got a lot of eyeballs watching, especially local TV. Oh, oh, oh it's, it's, it, each, each organization has logis logistics uh, that it's going to think about. I mean, if, you, if, you're, if, you're, if you're this uh, newspaper, you have to have people stationed on the coast. If you're a TV station, the one, one thing that we don't have to do that TV people do is they don't, we don't have to stand out in the rain. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but it's, it, uh, right, I mean, this is where, this is where, this is where the, the, the public service uh, aspect uh, and where where we're kind of pretty much in tune with uh, with state authorities because we we both have the same this the same objective here and Bill you saw where all governors of the states from Florida Georgia South Carolina and North Carolina were all in lockstep here mm -hmm. because they realized the seriousness of the situation and the fact that they were all in this together in tandem I right. think was significant and I would also I'd also give some praise to the federal government I think President Trump FEMA and federal officials, uh, they all coordinated, putting partisan politics aside, 
all of the states, and they were prepared and ready. Uh, Jim Galloway, whose daughter is at FEMA, it's glad to hear you say yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> I think the lesson she learned in North Carolina last year with Hurricane Florence. I mean, they experienced a lot of flooding and issues with trying to get to individuals. So I think they heeded the call of, we have to go now mm -hmm. and prepare our people and, and take care of them. Okay. Well, personally, I think the president would have been better off to let his own people handle it rather than pulling that stunt with the Sharpie and trying to act like it was going in Alabama and so forth because the FEMA, this is not their first radio, rodeo. This is what they do. And I think they did a good job. Okay, um, why don't we move on? Uh, Jim Galloway, there's another storm brewing uh, off the Georgia coast. In fact, it's coming ashore in many ways. Uh, now that Johnny Isaacson has said, at the end of 2020, I am gonna resign <coughs> my seat in the Senate, we suddenly have two seats in play uh, for uh, 2020 uh, races. And the maneuvering has really begun on both the Democratic and Republican right. side. Right. I'm, I'm going I'm to switch metaphors with you. I'm going to call uh, uh, call it an earthquake, followed by an unending series of aftershocks. <laughs> <laughs> because because right now you you do have you do have uh, both Republicans and Democrats trying to figure out. Who's going to race, uh, run for Senate race number one? Is anybody else going to join the three Democrats there? Uh, who's going to run for Senate race number two, uh, uh, which will depend on who Kemp appoints? Right now, uh, uh, Doug Collins is 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 getting a lot of a, a lot of uh, free ink, uh, uh, both both in the AJC and the New York Times. Uh, the the report is that he has been talking to Donald Trump about this, which is a, a rather effective thing to do if you want to be named named. Uh, named the next senator but then th think about this and if 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 Doug Collins leaves that Gainesville seat then you've got an open seat there you've got talk that Lucy McBath is thinking about a Senate race which would really really throw up uh, the sixth district race for grab uh, up for grabs um, so let me Eric let me turn to you uh, because you are the Republican on the panel today I can understand why Doug Collins would himself be positioning uh, to maybe be the, the, the candidate for what Jim Galloway, and we're going to use his language, call Senate race number two, the open seat that Johnny Isaacson leaves behind. Um, I get that you'd appeal to President Trump, hoping that he will tilt the balance your way if that's happening. But Doug Collins right now plays a crucial role as the ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee. And it strikes me that that role is even more important as the House continues its uh, investigations of the president. If you're a Republican leader, do you really want Collins? Uh, you lose that ranking member position, or I, am I overestimating how important it is for him to be there? Well, first of all, this is all speculation. Of course. And, and you know, I think Doug Collins is being talked about because of the job that he's been doing as the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee. But at the end of the day, this is going to be Brian Kemp's decision. He's going to be very deliberative in his decision making. I think there's a lot of speculation, a lot of supporters for all of these various, you know, trial balloons that are being sent up for people that, you know, would like to uh, get appointed. I think the governor 
you know, has to look at the priorities. He wants to make sure that, that, that Senator Perdue gets reelected. He wants to make sure President Trump gets reelected. And it's an opportunity, too, for him to think ahead to the future of the Republican Party. That's a lot to think about. And I think all of these names that have been tossed around, uh, there's pros and cons, and people are going to, you know, people that want to put down one candidate are going to float, you know, information out about that. I just think that we all need to just step back, let the governor process it all. I don't think you can campaign for this. I think this is something that the governor is going to take all of the information. This is a big decision. This decision, you know, is going to say a whole lot about Brian Kemp. And as we've talked about on this show in the past, he's made some pretty impressive appointments over the last several months. And I have every belief to think he's going to do the same here. Bill, let me take it up from Eric here and make a couple of observations. First of all, I do think you overestimate the importance of the okay. job that yeah, uh, I, Collins has. I, I think had. that's probably right. And I think that uh, if he saw a chance to go to the Senate and all was clear for him, he would take it in a minute. And there are no indispensable people, and there'd be somebody waiting to take his place, place in the House, I assure you. What I want to point out here about this situation in which uh, Governor Kemp finds himself is that this is only the third time that this has happened that is an appointment for the Senate during my lifetime. Of course, the first one was uh, Jimmy Carter appointed David Gabriel on the death of Russell. Also, Roy Barnes, Governor Barnes appointed uh, Zell Miller on the uh, death of Senator Coverdale, both of uh, which were somewhat unexpected at the time. But this time, the governor has four months to make a decision so I'm not sure where this is good or whether it's bad, because in each case, Governor Carter and Governor Barnes had to go ahead and make a decision. It came to an end. This is going to go on forever. Ever four months is an eternity in politics. So who knows what's going to happen and what's going to occur outside factors that, that could lead to circumstances beyond anyone's control. So it's going to be a fa fascinating time. I'd also add, too, that, you know, you have people in Washington that are very interested, obviously, in this in this appointment. Uh, we have some tough, competitive Senate races around the country. Mm -hmm. So in Washington, you know, they want to get a very strong candidate. They're looking at who could fund their campaign so they could divert national mm -hmm. money other places. Uh, the president's obviously looking out for his own uh, re-election. So there's a lot of pressure, not just in the state. There's pressure coming from Washington, too. And I think the media is being used by all of these various camps <laughs> to float various names. Let me let me get Karen in here, and then I know you want to join, uh, have a lot to say about this, Jim. Karen, you're, you're studying, you're researching special elections. Uh, Senate seat number two, the open seat, is going to be a special election. It'll happen to occur on the same day as the general election next November. And it's a jungle election. We've talked about that on the show. People will, they may have their party label attached to the ballot, but they, there will not be a primary. Republicans and Democrats will run on the same ballot. And uh, there will most likely, given the number of candidates that could be in the race, be a runoff from there. What, sh what should we think about in terms of the dynamics of that kind of election? So I think one thing that we'll have to consider about here in Georgia and looking kind of at what happened in the special election in the 6th District, how much money came into these open seat races when you are on a jungle primary. So every party wants to make sure the candidates can actually fundraise well so that they're spending their resources, you know, elsewhere in other races, perhaps in that David Perdue race and um, whoever the Democratic nominee is for that side. But I think the money part will be is a big factor. I think you'll see a lot of money come into the second Senate seat, as Jim referred to it. 
I think the other key point will be who is actually chosen from the Republican side in this appointment. And you're right when Eric talks about Kemp has a lot of pressure and a lot of things to think about. And I looked back at recent appointments in the U.S. Senate, so other states. And if we look, Arizona's governor, they appointed Martha McSally. Mm -hmm. And then so you have a woman, Mississippi. They appointed a woman, Cindy Hyde you know, Smith. And then Minnesota, after Al Franken, they appointed their lieutenant governor, who was a female. So that you've seen in the last two cycles a lot of women who came into these appointments because again trying to talk to after the Me Too movement also playing in the, the factor that women are strong voters in the post-Trump win. I think that's going to factor in to this race. Will there be women in that lineup of candidates? Because we know in political science, if you have women's names along with a lot of men names, voters are actually more inclined to vote for a woman at that point if there's not tied into a partisan battle. Yeah. Um, to, to that point, uh, I think we, we've talked, we've referred to this as a jungle primary. Yeah, but a I think, but, but, yeah, a, a jungle general. Yeah, a jungle general. And that's the point, it, that it's, it's, it's not, but it's not happening in isolation. It is happening on the ballot with the U.S. presidential contest, with, with the other Senate race. And, and so resources become a real issue in, the, in, the, in this contest. And you have both sides now. You have, you've got a, 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 um, a meeting that Georgia Democrats are having with national Democrats next week to see if they can kind of uh, uh, do a, an informal winnowing of, of, of a potential field, field to, to bring some sense to it. I think you could have, depending on which way uh, Kemp goes on his appointment, you could have a rival Republican in the contest. Yeah, I, 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 it's, I it's, it's, I, it's, you it could, depends, but it I don't think it that depends. Wait, let me make sure I'm hearing so. this. You think it's, you don't, you think whoever Kemp appoints, and he's certainly not going to appoint a caretaker to allow for an open uh, field of Republicans. So you believe that whoever Kemp appoints, the field will be cleared, the Republican field for that candidate? Well, you can't. You can't guarantee that. Well, of that course you can't guarantee it, however, but you're expecting however, that's what's going to happen. I think the base of the Republican Party is behind the governor and will be supportive of his of his pick. Jim and if, then okay. Barry. All right, if, 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 if Kemp is looking more to 2022 rather than 2020 and thinking, uh, and, and let's say he goes with a Kelly Loeffler or a BJ Pack yeah. out of North Metro, you could still run with a, you, you could still have uh, someone, someone from uh, 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 beyond Metro Atlanta uh, taking a poke at the governor. So let's, let's again, try to keep listeners, everybody kind of on the same page. The reason you're talking about 2020 is that this special election in 2020, uh, in 2020, the reason you're talking about 2022 is that's when Kemp's up for re-election. Whoever wins election number two, Senate election number two, will then have to once again stand for Johnny Isaacson's uh, regular term in Ooh, 2022. Fine. So, buddy, what Jim has suggested in the past and is basically saying now again is Kemp's looking for, he's essentially picking a running mate for 2022. Yes, but this is my agree with Eric Tannenblatt day when I say that, <laughs> that this race is going to have an enormous uh, effect on the outcome of the keeping the Senate in Republican or Democratic hands. And right now, the Republican National Senate Committee uh, is already talking to uh, Governor Kemp about who can win and who can keep this a seat in Republican hands. Because Roy Barnes is a good example, and unfortunately, I was involved in this more than I needed to be um, 
Roy Barnes was not crazy about the idea of appointing Zell Miller. <laughs> I <laughs> However, bet that's Tom true. Daschle, who was the majority leader for the Senate, wanted to hang on to the Senate and assured him that they had taken polls and that the only Democrat who could win that race without any doubt was Zell Miller. And so they convinced Roy Barnes uh, that Zell Miller, who he would have preferred not to have appointed, uh, would be the next United States senator. And of course, it came came to be that he uh, won the uh, jungle primary, uh, jungle special election going away. So Karen, uh, Galloway just talked about, among other candidates as possibilities, Kelly Loeffler. For people who don't know her, her she and her husband, her husband, they bought the New York Stock Exchange. He's, he's a wealthy uh, businessman. Uh, she was uh, an owner. I don't know if she still has her piece of the WNBA Atlanta dream. She may very well. Eric says yes. Uh, she could self-fund her campaign. She's expressed interest in the past, thought about getting into a race last cycle, decided not to. W what are the implications of a Republican woman on the ticket? Will it help with uh, uh, the, the president himself and other Republicans on the ballot in terms of attracting uh, um, suburban women? So I think there's that likelihood that that's the target, that they would be going back towards those Republican suburban women, trying to make sure that they're coming out and supporting uh, candidates down ticket, whether those Republican suburban women are going to support and stay with the president or deflect, depending on who the Democratic nomination is. I mean, that's really a big kind of choice for them to see who comes up on the Democratic side. But I think you will see that if this, you know, Kelly, I'm sorry, Loeffler, sorry, um, if she is chosen or appointed, you know, she's going to have a, a big hurdle with name ID, especially in lots of, you know, South Georgia, because people might not be as familiar with mm -hmm. her. And so, you know, with Kemp and the strategy from the, you know, D.C. coming down, if you have the Senate uh, Republicans talking to the, the governor about a choice, they're going to be talking about who does have name ID, who do the citizens in Georgia seem to be favorable at with the Republican parties. And I think that will be part of the calculus that, that has to be decided. Jim, I, it, it, you would think that um, the governor might be looking very seriously at putting a woman in that second Senate race. I mean, the, the thing, though, is he's got plenty of choices here. Uh, well, it, he's, he's got a few choices. I mean, I mean, the, the, this is a significant problem in the Georgia Republican yeah, Party. Yeah, of course. Is, is, is finding, finding your, your, your... Well, you've got uh, Jan Jones. You, potentially Renee Unterman, if she chose to drop out of the 7th District congressional race. There are women right. Republicans who are available. Right, and then they both have good name ID uh, uh, in, in, in North Metro, but, but, but to Karen's point... Yeah, they're, they're not well they're, known they're not, they're not. We, we right. don't have any... I mean, look, if you were talking about a Karen Handel who had stayed... Well, that's what who, Tom Faust just said who, in my ear. Who, who, had, who had stayed in the Secretary of State's office yeah. and, and, and had been on the state ballot a couple times... Then, then, then that 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 would be a a possibility. Well, and the names there. I mentioned. I mean, Martha McSally was a congresswoman, but we're talking about the others had actually held statewide office in their states. Yeah. Yeah. And so, right now in Georgia, we really have down ballot. We just in the state constitutional offices, Republicans don't have women who have been running and winning. And so, there's no one to really pull from at that part that can run statewide. Eric, and, and you know, going back to the. Uh, Senate race in 2000 that Buddy was talking about when Zell Miller was appointed by Governor Barnes. I, I remember we had a very short window and we had a similar situation and the Republicans had to pick a nominee. 
And there were a lot of people that came out of the woodwork. And as you know, Jim recalls, uh, it was at the Republican convention in Philadelphia. The, pre- the presidential the nomination convention. That the, yeah, yeah that, that the delegates from Georgia uh, rallied around Mac Mattingly. Yep. And one of the reasons why was he was battle tested. We knew that there was not gonna be any embarrassment. And we had a presidential race George W. Bush was running for president, and that was that was a competitive presidential race, and we didn't want anything to impact the outcome of that presidential. So race. you so you essentially had a rump caucus in Philadelphia yeah, yeah. pick the pick the, the the Republican nominee for U.S. Senate. All right, let's do this. I, I, we've been talking a lot about Republican names. Let's let's uh, take a break right now. When we come back, let's talk about some of the Democratic names that are being floated about, around for, especially Senate seat number two. This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Well, this won't take long. <laughs> Downton Abbey is coming to the big screen. Right now, GPB invites you to be among the first to see this new feature film. Join us on Sunday, September 15th in Atlanta for an advanced screening and VIP reception. Tickets are limited, so make sure we hear from you now. Go to gpb.org slash Downton Tickets to find out more and reserve your seat. That's gpb.org slash Downton Tickets. In 2012, a Border Patrol agent shot and killed a Mexican man standing on the southern bank of the Rio Grande. The investigation into that incident is still incomplete. Something has clearly gone off the rails. Uh, This is just beyond absurd at this point. I'm Ari Shapiro. What's bogging down investigations into deaths at the border? This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org. Buddy Darden, it's a darn good thing you're not a candidate for office again because your mic was still open when I said we're going to talk about the Democrats for the second race. And that that they caught you saying, well, that won't take long. Why wouldn't it take long? I'll say it again. It won't take long because at the present time, we don't have any candidates. Uh, And the reason we don't is that we've got to have Governor Kemp play his card first, mm-hmm. because until we know who we're facing and who the new senator was going to be, that will determine uh, who the Democrats uh, push and get behind. And you use the word nominate that, with Mac Mattingly, Jim, that's not quite correct because uh, he was a consensus choice, but by no means was he a nominee. Yeah. He was just put in there sure, as absolutely. a representative Republican. Right. All right, so let's talk. Buddy says we don't know who's going to be in Senate race number two, but Jim, we do know a lot about Senate race number one at this point, and I'm curious about several things. Um, first of all, we should talk about somebody who's not in the race. You pointed out to me and to the panel, actually, uh, that uh, Dana Milbank had a piece in the Washington Post the other day. He's a columnist, an op-ed writer. He's, he's not a news writer. Uh, and he uh, took Stacey Abrams to task. He castigated her uh, for not jumping into a Senate race. And, and was, you know, we know that as soon as Johnny said he was resigning, she immediately said, I'm not interested in. Right, right. You yeah. know, this is the national media doing what it does sometimes. They don't understand the politics here, but it was, a, you know. Well, it, what, what it was, that. what it was, it was, uh, it, it was not just Abrams, but it was Beto yeah. O'Rourke right. and, and, and the governor of Montana. And, you know, he was, uh, uh, his, his, it was a Washington-centric point of view where, where he was saying that if you fix this one thing in the Senate, everything will be all right. Uh, just take control of the Senate, remove Mitch M- M- McConnell as, as majority leader, and, and everything would be fine. 
done, that should be the top priority. And and what I was pointing out is that that Abrams is is has got a much more granular approach, and I yeah. think probably a more historically correct a- approach. I mean, she's she's uh, uh, doing this on n- numerous levels. Number one, she's identified the real fight in Georgia as not to not one, uh, Senate race number one or Senate race number two, but the fight for the state house yeah. for control of the state house, yeah. where Democrats are 15 seats short. Uh, Karen, here's one of the quotes from the Milbank column. If the anti-Trump majority doesn't prevail next year and resoundingly repudiate the hatred, isolation, and drift toward autocracy, it won't much matter what happens later. Abrams, Bullock, and O'Rourke owe it to the country to end the reign of President Trump's enablers in the Senate. What do you make of that? I mean, I think what we really hear is the value that this columnist and others think about the importance of Washington, D.C. Yeah. And they forget about the politics of the states. Well, I love the and rhetoric. I, I love yes, the rhetoric. I love the advocacy. <laughs> and so you can't really take that much, much issue. But I will, I will, I will point well, out. Well, I think there are a lot of people, like maybe yeah. one of them sitting across the table from you who would take issue with the rhetoric. But it, go ahead. Except I, what, I do, what I do question here when it comes to uh, former Minority Leader Abrams is this. Uh, she's out there running for vice president, and uh, you don't run for vice president. It's fine to be considered and let people know you're going to do it, but to have uh, what I consider to be almost an active campaign, when there are so many variables that would affect the outcome, I think it's a very, very specious type of of activity, and I think that she ought to at least give it some consideration, maybe run for, run for the Senate, and uh, I'll be interested to see how she can affect the turnout, but you can, you can affect the turnout a whole lot more if you're a candidate on the ballot like she did the previous time than you can to be out there going around from place to place revving up the troops. So, Eric, you, you uh, among other things that you've been, you uh, have raised, helped raise a lot of money for Republican candidates at all levels, starting with president and, and coming on down. So I'm curious about something. Um, I've asked this question since the day that Isaacson said he was stepping down. You have Teresa Tomlinson, Sarah Amico actually formally announced that same week that he said he was stepping down, and you have Ted Terry, who's already been in the race. All three of them were adamant within the days after the Isaacson announcement that they had no interest in switching over to what is essentially Senate race number two. Now, is that because they've already um, propose their theory for what their race is all about, defeating David Perdue? Have they already told donors that they need to give them money so they can beat David Perdue? Is that what it comes down to? Well, I think in the case of those three, yes, because the basis for their campaign is they disagree with David Perdue. And otherwise, they just look like uh, opportunists. opportunists. Okay. With, with regards to the Milbank piece, though, I think another reason why you know Beto O'Rourke Bullock and Abrams uh, aren't running for the Senate is because I don't think that they believe they can win. I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that Beto O'Rourke can beat John Cornyn. And I don't think, even though Bullock is a very popular uh, governor, I don't think he could beat Steve Daines, who's a popular senator. And Stacey Abrams, you know, her unfavorables in Georgia have gone up. Mm -hmm. She has decided she wants to you know, go on the national stage. And I think you're right. I think she is running for vice president. So I think the decision that Stacey came right out of the chute is because I don't think she she saw the calculus and I don't think she uh, thought that she could win. Now, the challenge, I think, for the Democrats here with race number two is, um, you know, is there a viable 
African-American candidate because the three candidates that are running against David Perdue are all white candidates and the base of the Democratic Party in Georgia is African-American. And without Stacey Abrams, who is a very high profile candidate, who is a statewide high profile African-American that can run? Let me mention one name. And I think we can all agree that he would be a major factor if he did come out. And of course, that's the CEO of DeKalb County, Michael Thurman. He's battle tested. Uh, he's African-American. He's smart. He's articulate. And he would be a vulnerable candidate. Let, let's park Thurman just for a moment, because I know you've been wanting to make a point about this. Well, number one, I'm going to disagree with both with, with both Buddy and Eric, and I, and I don't think she's running for vice president. I think she's very carefully running for governor in 2022, okay. and I think that's that's what her maneuvering and her and her and her planning and her emphasis on voter registration. Uh, continued emphasis is all about, uh, but but I do think I, I do think that it, if with if if you if we if if Democrats get to November 2020, after Stacey Abrams in 2018, and don't have an African American near the top of the ballot, I think that's a problem. And uh, in addition to Michael Thurman, I would also throw in the name of Raphael Warnock. Um, uh, pastor of Ebenezer Baptist. Yeah, his congregation would uh, run about it, it, it would be it would be a, it would be a tough choice. The only thing, Gary Boston. Twenty twenty is this race. Both of these Senate races are on top of that are tied with the presidential race. So you're going to have higher turnout, typical than like mm -hmm. we had in twenty eighteen. So you're going to see that. I think the push will be to make sure African Americans are out voting. I think the top of the ticket Democratic nomination will have an effect on some of that. My interest would be if Abrams decides to endorse someone for this Senate seat number two. If, if there is an African-American Democrat who wants to step up, does she come in behind right at, at, right at that time and say, yes, I'm backing this person? Or does she, because, get, right, or does she or get behind somebody like a Jen Jordan? Yes. And if she does that, then does that mobilize and we also the have base to look at, of the Democratic Party here in the state? And I think there's a generational issue as well. I mean, Michael Thurman, who, who I actually have a very good relationship with and like Michael Thurman, but like a lot of older African-Americans who are endorsing Joe Biden for president, you know, you have a different generation, you have a younger generation of African-Americans that are, you know, supporting people like Cory Booker and Kamala Harris. And so I don't think just because it's, an African American that that's going to that that's going to do it. I think it has to be the right. It, it, Mike right Thurman. Candidate. There's no question that Mike Thurman. I think is looking at this race. He was not looking at race number one, the David Perdue race. But it seems fairly clear, just in reading between the lines with him, that he's giving serious thought to whether he does want to get into race number two. What are the dynamics of that in a special, again, a jungle election where you're all, everybody's all together, if you're, say, the only African-American in the race? So I think the dynamic is making sure that you generate your support. Like you get your, you know, Michael Thurman has a lot of name identifications, particularly in the metro area. And I was just thinking about what you said about generational. So at West Georgia, I teach, a, you know, we have, I think, 30 percent of our students are African-American. And recently in one of my classes, several African-American students talked about how they didn't want to support Kamala Harris because they didn't feel like she was aligning with some of their ideas. And that, you know, was kind of interesting to me. And they were looking at other candidates. And so Michael Thurman will have a little bit of a challenge with the young generation and that they don't know him as when he was a statewide officer. Yeah. So he will have to talk about that part. Okay. Bill, you mentioned somebody a while ago and we've kind of omitted it. And that's Sheriff Austin, the uh, yeah, district yeah. attorney for the Stone Mountain Judicial yep. Circuit, DeKalb yep. County. And uh, he's certainly a power in uh, state politics. And well. Lucy McBath. And what Lucy happens, McBath. What happens if Lucy McBath? What does happen, Jim, if she decides <clears throat> to give up? And 
it's interesting if you look at your if you look at Twitter feeds today, there's already somebody who's been tweeting out uh, URLs that have been reserved for various people. And Lucy, somebody has reserved for you a URL of Lucy McBath for Senate. It may not be her, but it's out there. <laughs> well, look, she's got a she's she's already proven she's got a decent fundraising base and she has got a, a national identity going. Uh, does she have a, 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 a enough presence that would sell sell statewide? I don't know. Buddy, do you as a Democrat want her to give up that sixth district seat? No, I do not. I'm a friend of Lucy McBath. Uh, I was one of the few people that supported her uh, in her last election, visibly. And I think a whole lot of her. I think she's an amazing woman who's done a lot of great things. But I think this is a bridge too far for her. And I think that she would do well to hang on to the seat she's got. Let me keep the ball with you for another minute. we got to get to a break pretty quickly and then give everybody else a chance. Um, so this week, Teresa Tomlinson has tried to be as opportunistic as possible now that there's a lot of focus on both Senate races here. She rolled out the endorsement of Andy Young and his wife. Mm-hmm. And the next day she rolled out an endorsement from Hank and Billy Aaron. Right. Uh, Hank Aaron, much more involved in politics than I think a lot of people realize. Right. But whether he is or not, a hero to people mm-hmm. in Georgia. How important is she? Is that going to help her keep the, the Democrats uh, contained in that race? In other words, is she going to lock out other people who may want to get into the race as she rolls out that kind of endorsement? I think she will because she's got a long list of people kind of standing in line who've already agreed to do it, uh, including myself. And uh, this won't be the... the is, is, this, are you endorse, is this yes, your official yes, I, endorsement? Yes, it is. And I think I think that uh, Stop the yeah. <laughs> I, I think that I think that uh, she will will, uh, will do well. I don't think my endorsement amounts to a hill of beans, but uh, she asked me to, and I was delighted to do it. All right, uh, it's going to be interesting, Jim. We are in for an amazing uh, next uh, year and what four or five months, whatever it is. It's going to be really something to watch. We've got plenty to talk about. My goodness. And as a final note before our break. Uh, the runoff in that general election would not take place until January 5th, I think is the date. That means that every other U.S. Senate race in the country may well have been decided by then. If there is any question as to who has control of the U.S. Senate after the November elections, Georgia will tip the balance one way or the and, other. And the other thing that matters is who wins the White House. Yeah. Absolutely. Because it be- because this race becomes the first black backlash opportunity. Yeah. All right. We got plenty of time to talk about that in the months ahead. Um, but we're going to turn to uh, the politics of Washington after we take this break. Are you thinking of getting rid of your old car, truck or RV? GPB's vehicle donation program is here to help. Donating has never been easier. We'll take care of everything, including free pickup of your vehicle. Just go to gpb.org cars or call 877-GPB-1-CAR. That's 877-472-1227. And thanks so much. Can you charge your cell phone using running water or an escalator? And how effective is tennis star Serena Williams at swatting down a drone? I'm Ira Flato. On the next Science Friday, Randall Monroe ponders these brain-teasing questions and the science behind them. All on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. This afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. Jim Galloway, let me just do a very quick cleanup of something. On on the show on Wednesday, uh, we talked briefly, uh, your colleague Greg Bluestein was here, about the fact that um, 
The uh, White House is taking some $3.7 billion from military projects around the country to uh, uh, go to building Trump's parts of uh, the president's wall. We speculated about 230 some million dollars of projects that could be uh, uh, canceled in Georgia. Your colleague Tamar Hellerman in Washington now has it on the authority of a number of uh, Republicans up on the Hill that Georgia is going to be left alone, which may say, if that's true, it says something about the power of Georgia in the 2020 election. It, it does. It, it says the. It, it talks a lot about the importance that uh, that Trump places on David Perdue's seat and on Sonny Perdue's influence in the White House. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Sonny Perdue because uh, Eric Tannenblatt. That's the next thing I wanted to turn to. Um, you worked for Sonny Perdue. Uh, he's now, of course, Agriculture Secretary, and he's kind of been out there held out as the man who is going to hold farmers in line for President Trump, despite the fact so many of them are being hurt by the uh, trade wars. Um, it's a thankless task. And the question becomes, with farmers getting hit harder and harder, with China closing its markets entirely, maybe it's not a thankless task because we haven't seen farmers revolt against President Trump so far. Well, and I think some of that is because of the support that, you know, the financial support that they're getting from the government. And I think that there's an agricultural secretary in Sonny Perdue who understands the people that he's talking to. And I think that he's established a level of trust because he's one of them. And, you know, this is very frustrating uh, what, what is going on with China. But, you know, President Trump is holding the line. And this is something that, you know, no president has had the courage to do. And Sonny Perdue is a, a loyal, you know, soldier uh, in the president's uh, cabinet. And he's the right person to go out there. You know, I think Karen, he needs to stay away, away from stand-up comedy. Doesn't yeah, he made a he made, <laughs> he a, made joke. a pretty serious gap yeah, about a, the a, wine cellar. A bad yeah. joke about farmers is basically whining about their their. Yeah, it was the the thing was it was a joke made in Wisconsin, which has the highest rate of of uh, farm bankruptcies yeah. in the nation, and 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 a couple weeks later, he he sat down with a reporter and acknowledged that that suicide is a huge pro problem yeah. in the agricultural world at this time. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, I think the farmers have been willing to let the president work on the trade negotiations because they have received some financial package and they've been willing to roll along. But if it starts to hit more American consumers and then we head towards the election next year and the economy does start to get worse in some way, I think voters by November of next year are going to look again to their pocketbook and what really has happened to us in the last six months and have we benefited or has another industry benefited more than we have? And one, one thing I will say is that Sonny Purdue is no shrinking violet. I know that firsthand. Yeah, and those just, of us who covered and, him. No, and just like and and just like you saw when we were in the NAFTA negotiations with Canada and Mexico, and the president was going to walk away, I think Sonny Perdue had a lot to do with getting the president back to the table, and I would not be surprised. In fact, I, I would almost be certain that you know what Sonny Perdue is hearing from farmers and what he is seeing, he's conveying that back to the president in the White House. You know, all right, so we're going to watch how that unfolds. We will see if farmers stay loyal. The interesting thing about that, buddy, of course, is that um, while there are many people out there who question the uh, vigor with which the president is pursuing his trade war with China, Democrats and Republicans alike, economists of both uh, parts, you know, conservative, liberal, whatever, say somebody had to finally take China on. So it's kind of a mixed signal in terms of what the president's doing with China. That's correct. And then I see it as one big blur because he's over here one day 
to left over here to the right on, yeah. on the other time. And then he's saying that he's met with these people and talked with these people. And it turns out that maybe he thought about meeting with them, but hadn't gotten around yeah. to it. All right. So we'll we'll see how careful. it all plays out in the months ahead. Jim Galloway, let's move on because there are a couple more items I really would like to get to before we run out of time. Um, the, you had an item in uh, the uh, Insider this afternoon that um, Mayor Bottoms, Keisha Bottoms of Atlanta, was part of a 45-minute phone call, a conference call? No, she wasn't part of it, but but, uh, oh. but there, there, there was a com there okay. was a, a conference call, 45-minute conference call be with, with rep that reporters across the country had with Biden campaigners. Gotcha. And the whole point of this was the Biden campaign is now saying, well, yeah, it's possible we may not win Iowa. Well, yeah, it's possible we may not new win New Hampshire. South Carolina is the firewall. That's right. That, that's right. It becomes clear that 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 uh, Biden is leading, leaning very heavily on the African American vote in the Democratic Party, and specifically in in South Carolina with Jim Clyburn. And uh, of course, we got notice from the Biden campaign uh, this week that uh, that. Uh, um, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms is going to spend three days in South Carolina this month, um, trying to trying to make sure that that there are no cracks. You've got Keisha Bottoms on board with Biden, Calvin Smyrie, uh, the the dean of the Georgia Legislature out of Columbus, is now on the Biden team. But you know, buddy, I I know I understand the game of lowering expectations in politics, but if months ahead of the of the caucus in the primary, you're already lowering expectations about Iowa and New Hampshire. I just don't think it sends a particularly terrific signal to what kind of energy and commitment you think both voters have about your campaign. Well, right now, most voters have a focused on the campaign, and so many of them who tend to be considered moderate uh, are just waiting back to see what's going to happen. And I think it's still awful early, and this race is not nearly so far along as kind of we've been led to believe. So I think it's still got to play out, and we're a long way from any resolution. I do think what Jim said is significant. I was not aware of that, but uh, I, do, I do think that uh, they're pulling out all the stops in South Carolina. Eric? Well, I have a couple of thoughts on this, having been involved in a number of presidential yeah. races. I think that uh, I think what probably is going on is that the Biden campaign is finding it difficult in Iowa because of the work that's been done, early work that's been done by some of the other candidates mm -hmm. and it, mostly Elizabeth Warren in particular. I do think it is really risky to put something like that out and reminds me a very popular New York City mayor at the time who put all of his eggs in Florida in Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. That's exactly and, and, right. And, and one of the things you with presidential elections, when you start the primary season, the uh, intensity of the media coverage in Iowa and New Hampshire, and if you're just sort of kicking back, waiting for it to get to South Carolina, there's going to be so much momentum for those candidates that come out of Iowa yeah. and New Hampshire. And, and, yeah, but you do have Nevada in between. And yeah. Nevada. Okay. Yeah. But I, I agree. It's just seems like an odd strategy, Karen. Yes, and I think it bodes to the idea of why are you picking up the ground game in Iowa so that you can get a buzz instead right. of kind of letting it go that you're not maybe going to be in the top slot there. I think the interesting thing, if we look back, was at 08 when Obama in South Carolina, was that when the Oprah went and helped generate buzz? I think that's right. In, in, yeah. in Iowa. And, but I was just thinking, if you're really trying, you know, Mayor Bottoms is great going, but if, are they going to be looking as the Democrats to other celebrities to get into certain states to generate turnout again? Um, are our celebrities willing at this point to want to jump into the races? I don't know, but it'll be interesting to see who actually then comes in 
to South Carolina additionally. Where's Oprah? Right. Where's Obama? <laughs> uh, all right. Um, Michelle Obama. <laughs> Karen, as long as the ball's in your court, uh, The Hill the other day published a really interesting article. It was, a, I think, a bit of hyperbole, we should say, going in. They selected 10 counties, most of them are in the Midwest, in, especially in Wisconsin, that could determine the outcome of the 2020 presidential race. Again, I say it's hyperbolic, but they included Peach County down in middle Georgia, saying that since it voted for Obama both times and uh, in, in his races for Trump in 2016, 50% white voters, 45% African-American, half are rural, half are in cities. We should be watching Peach County and it will have a big impact on who wins the presidential race. Do you buy that? I don't know that I buy that there are only 10 <laughs> counties that this we need to be another national watching. publication. No, no, it's interesting that they picked Peach <laughs> County. I mean, and yes, the, the demographic discussion that was there, but I thought, oh, it just really says a lot about Georgia, right? Georgia peaches and pick Peach County. Well, well it was, first of all, it was a st statistical anomaly yeah. that, that, that Peach County had, had the exact sp spread that the statewide contest yes. did in the race for president and the race for governor. Uh, and just geographically, this is just north of Perry, right. just south of Macon. Fort Valley is probably the biggest thing there. But I do think that our conversation on agriculture really applies uh, here. This, this is a, it's a heavily agricultural uh, county and how they're doing financially will matter. Uh, yeah, I You're right. right. But, but one of the uh, biggest peach farmers down there is also a state representative, Robert Dickey. And he's a Republican, always runs unopposed. So. I'm not sure. I, don't, I didn't think much of the selection of Peach County, frankly. I thought that it was, it was an anomaly, and I think there'd be a lot of better counties in Georgia that would be yeah, I think Bellwell. you might want to look into the 6th and 7th district to <laughs> yeah, see where, yeah. where the, <laughs> right. the outcome of the race really might uh, be impacted in a, in a big way. But it was interesting uh, uh, to see that. Um, all right. Uh, last thing on the agenda for today. Uh, Jim, this is a small group, but it's an important one. Voters in Cobb County in, I think, five municipal elections, uh, in city elections, uh, four, I'm now being told by uh, uh, Tom Faust, they're going to vote on paper. They're actually, this fall, going to fill in bubbles on a paper belt. Remember that? Right. Yeah. That's how we took the SAT test, yes. too, back in my day. All right. Poor Chad, we hanged him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, Overmarked. Yeah. And they're doing it in part as a test because Judge Amy Totenberg has said, if you don't, if Georgia doesn't get its computer ballot system ready for the March presidential primary, everybody's gonna vote on paper. So Cobb's kind of biting the bullet and they're gonna be the test. For they're this. gonna be the test. And, and and this is a test that goes two ways. I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a test that to, to show good faith on the part of the state. But if there are serious problems in terms of lines and logistics, then it's it's also something that they can they can go to the judge and point point to Judge Totenberg and say, this is what you got statewide. Well, respectfully, there won't be a problem, though, because you just got such a low turnout in these little yeah. cities. Uh, for example, Aquare, if you're not going to have people standing in line uh, for hours at a time to vote, same thing with Kennesaw, Powder Springs, Austell. Marietta, the largest city, has no election this time. Smyrna has an election. And you're just not looking at the numbers that uh, usually no, pose a real the, problem. No. The volume of voters may not be there, but I think it will be interesting to see even that voter who's very active, it will take longer because they're used to that touch screen for the last several elections they've been through. And now you're asking them to bubble in 
plan and remember what to do and how that's going to be. I think you'll just have a little bit of a, a change of, oh, what's the expectation now, how I fill this out. And, and but you only have probably four and races, five right? at most races, yeah. sometimes only one or two races. Yeah, but, but meanwhile, Eric, um, what it does remind us is that there is a federal judge who is watching over our election process as it unfolds and who has the ability to weigh in at any minute to, as she watches to see what happens with these new Dominion computer systems. And by the way, they're going to use the Dominion ballot readers right. to tally the vote, but you're going to hand mark it. it. It just reminds us the feds are involved in our next election. Absolutely. And, but I think they're going to, I think for the reasons Buddy just cited and the fact that there's going to be so much attention that there's going to be a lot of resources poured into making sure that this goes well. You'll be voting uh, with a bubble. No, I'm in unincorporated Cobb County. Oh, so you don't vote at all on the municipal elections. All right, I get that. And my city won't be voting. Marietta won't be voting because they're not up until two years years from now. All right. So um, before we get out of here, um, Jim Galloway, let, let's just add one thing. We're gonna, not going to get a chance to talk about it in depth, but we want to point people to your Sunday column because you have a terrific column in the paper. It's online right now about Walmart, its decision to stop selling ammunition for handguns, for um, semi-automatic weapons, long guns, that sort of thing. Right. And among the many things you talk about in there is how Walmart didn't get the same kind of pushback for doing this that Delta did when Delta spoke out um, in the aftermath. No, because because Walmart is this corporation that is kind of on a pedestal in, in the Republican world. I mean, it is this this is the economic church of the of, of the GOP, especially in Georgia. It's got 200 stores, a lot of it, a lot of them in rural Georgia. And and it, it spends it gives a lot of money. It donates a lot of money uh, to, to Republican causes here. And so far, I, I just have not heard any any pushback and I think the end I think Walmart could become this this conservative counterweight to the NRA when it comes to, to, to the debate over guns and violence and I think it could affect uh, the the reception that, that that certain bills get in the state capitol next year interesting to watch how, uh, how that plays out buddy it is also true that Delta uh, uh, has always been viewed as kind of a socially active company in a way that Walmart has not been before. You wouldn't want to call them liberal. They'd certainly resist that term, but they have been activists in a way that Walmart never has been in the past. Well, I'm certainly no, no uh, keen observer of Republican politics. I defer to Eric on this, but I found out when I was in the uh, Congress of the United States that most areas supported some reasonable restrictions on guns, and this applies to Republicans as well as Democrats. And uh, for example, I always said that my uh, constituents in East Cobb were what we call Brady Bill Republicans. They, mm -hmm. they had no problem with the waiting period on the purchase of a handgun, and most Republicans, I believe, support some uh, legitimate types of uh, restrictions. I got to cut you off. You got the last word on today's show. That's Buddy Darden. Uh, Karen Owen is with us. Eric Tannen, Vlad, Jim Galloway. Thank you so much for being here, Jim. I know I'll see you again on Monday when we're going to have your colleague Maureen Downey in here. Uh, we're going to talk about the education issues that face uh, Governor Kemp, including how he is moving forward to perhaps disassemble Common Core. It'll be again. an interesting show.
Yeah, again. All right. <laughs> That's it for us. Very quick note. Uh, I spent an hour and a half with Brenda Lee this morning, the great, great singer uh, who has been honored with Georgia Public Broadcasting's first Georgia Legend Award. I congratulate her for that. We recorded a really wonderful conversation. I'll have a date for you coming up when you can hear my conversation with Brenda Lee. But in the meantime, Brenda, good work. Congratulations. See you all again on Monday.